In their own words, is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you. It wasn't really a time when there was a lot of jamming going on. Like People think we were like the Jacksons of jazz. And the dad was like, get in that closet and practice. If you don't practice, you're getting in the closet. Here's your instrument. No, it wasn't like that at all. My mom was the one that really kind of made sure we did the work. Welcome to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Have you ever heard of a musical family? One where nearly everyone plays a musical instrument. Well, there's one family in New Orleans that is perhaps the most famous musical family in the world. I'm talking about the Marcellus family. Dad is Ellis, Mom is Dolores, and together they raise six sons. Today, Dr. Tony Leach, Professor Emeritus, speaks with trombonist, composer, producer, and educator, Delphio Marcellus. Let's talk about family matters as we begin this conversation. I'm blessed to have four brothers. You have five brothers. What was the Marsalis house like as you were growing up with all these guys hanging out? (laughs) Well, uh, originally the plan, I guess devised by my mother was to, our mother, was to have pairs. So Branford and Winton were born together. Then my brother Ellis, and then I, we were like within a year. Mm-hmm. And then they took a little bit of a break. Five years after me, Mboya was born. Now, Mboya, as it turns out, has autism. He's on the autism spectrum. So then they took a little bit of a break after Mboya. There was seven years. And then Jason came along. So I'd say early on, it was almost like two households. First, we lived in Kenner on Webster Street. Mm-hmm. And that's where there was, you know, Branford, Winton, Ellison, myself, and then once Mboya was born, we moved to New Orleans. Jason's 12 years after Branford. So by the time Jason was, was born, Branford was, you know, high school, I'm sure. Very good. Uh, so that's kind of what it was like. As far as, you know, the music goes, our father was always, he was usually at a gig or he had to teach school. Ellis Marcellus was a music teacher by day and a jazz pianist at night. In the 1950s and 60s, he played with drummer Ed Blackwell and brothers Nat and Cannonball Adderley. So there was some music uh, on occasions. It wasn't like all the time things going on. And I'd say that for the most part, uh, our musical development would have been in schools or actually in bands outside of the household. So it wasn't really a time when there was a lot of jamming going on. Like people think we were like the Jacksons of jazz. And the dad was like, get in that closet and practice. If you don't practice, you're getting in the closet. Here's your instrument. No, it wasn't like that at all. You know, I'd say that uh, my mom was the one that really uh, kind of made sure we did the work and everything. So as Branford would describe them, there was uh, mom, D, who was like fire, and then E, my dad, Ellis, was like ice. So... He was like, yeah, it was cool. There's rewards and consequences for all your actions. So he wasn't one that was like, you got to do this, you have to do that. He just said, well, if you don't do the work, then you won't get the results. It was cool, though. When you finally got to the point, probably as a teenager, when you and your older brothers were playing at a pretty high level, what was that like, especially as you think about your peers? Well... 
I think the major advantage that we had was there was a school called the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And uh, it's changed over the years, but back then, you know, we were in an old raggedy building uptown, and we prided ourselves on having the not only the raggedy building with no air conditioning, but uh, there were small classrooms. So I had maybe three students in my junior and senior class. So there was a lot of tension that the teachers were able to give us. And uh, everybody, Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison and Harry Connick Jr. and you know, my brothers and myself, we had the Jordan family, we all went there and uh, they taught on a very high level. So by the time I'm a junior in high school, and we had small classrooms, so I had maybe two or three other students in the class with me at that time, I'm analyzing Wagner, Tristan, Unisoldi, and, and I used to, you know, bot corrals. I kind of used to do that for fun. That might be a little geeky, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. But I would say that the, the main focus at that point was just to, to learn as much as you could and to have exposure to, to great music mm-hmm. and great art. So, you know, teenage years, uh, at that point, I still wanted to play maybe in the symphony. I was more going in the direction of orchestral music. Uh, so, of course, uh, Bradford was in Witness Band at that point. Um, so, you know, they, they had their thing that they were doing. And at that point, my brother Ellis had stopped playing music. So, you know, I'd say that there were, we had peers and we were all trying to have a, the same goal was to perform on as high a level as we could. And we never felt like we made it. We always were thinking, okay, we still have a long way to go. And even still now, we're like looking for where's that next stop going to take us. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Terrence Blanchard. If you're not familiar, Terrence Blanchard is a world-renowned trumpet player and composer from New Orleans. He has seven Grammys for his jazz work and two Oscar nominations for his film score collaborations with director Spike Lee. His operas in jazz have been wildly successful, with two being performed at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. Did you have any idea while you guys were growing up that he was on that kind of a trajectory as a composer? Well, no, there was no way to really predict much of what has happened for all of us at that point. And the the method of the teachers was that uh, we didn't know anything. So they're teaching us at the the college and the graduate level, and they're saying, you don't know anything. They're going to laugh at you when you get out there. And they see this, you're not prepared. So it's like we we went to college thinking, oh, Lord, everybody's at this high level. And it was like, oh, okay. So, but, you know, my philosophy is, you know, somebody has to get the gig. So, and you know, when I work with students today, that's that's just it. Somebody has to get the gig. Make sure that you're prepared, and then you have a good chance. So, looking back, no, there was no way we would have predicted that. But at the same time, I'm not at all surprised. Yeah, yeah. Since your dad was this marvelous pianist, mm-hmm. did all of the boys come up having to be at the piano, or that was not an, a factor? No, certainly not. Mm. In fact, we don't really play much piano at all. Uh, You know, so I think the idea was, and our mother was more the one that, that, it was a certain way that she handled us that it promoted the idea of individuality. So the idea was, okay, Branford had saxophone, went was on trumpet. So for me, it was like, okay, trombone kind of spoke to me. So, okay, this is something different. I have my own thing going. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, with Jason, he came up later on and he played the drums. So, um, you know, I'd say for, no, piano was something that we practiced a little bit, but I'd say more composer's piano. So 
so we practice enough to write the composed music. In many of the photos that I've seen of you, you're always wearing these fantastic socks. <laughs> Talk to me about these socks. <laughs> I, ah. <laughs> you know, I just have a certain kind of a, a sense of style, and it, it's colorful, and it's vibrant, and, you know, I just like it. And the socks are a way to, you can always stand out. I think I was playing with Max Roach <laughs> and the So What Brass Quintet, and we had the dress code. A lot of times the dress code will be black and white. And that's to, you know, kind of keep things uniform. And I realized that, well, okay, with the socks, I could maybe do a little something different. And so I brought out some socks, and he didn't complain about it. So I said, okay, this is it. So anytime I have to, you know, if they say black socks, and I had socks that even they had like a certain kind of design. It might be black and white with stripes or something. So it's just something I'm always looking for, a good pair of socks, man. You know, it's always a... My friend Glenn Burley, who passed in 2007, had a sock ministry. Oh, oh yeah, big time, <laughs> big time. He was as tall as you. Oh, yeah. But, but I would look down at those shoes, and I would see these socks and say, Glenn, what are you doing? <laughs> and it's something different. And also, we play, when we play at the club, like we played a place called Snug Harbor in New Orleans for a while, and you're seated on the bandstand. And the way that it is, the people, they're lower, on a lower level, so they really can see all the socks. So it's like, that's something I, I would tell the band members, hey man, get your sock game going. Get your sock game happening. When and why did you launch the Uptown Jazz Band? Ah yes, Uptown Jazz Orchestra. So 2007, I was hired by another band to play Duke Ellington's Nutcracker uh, and Billy Strayhorn, the Nutcracker Suite. And we did like two rehearsals, and it was poorly played. And I was like, you know, I, I wasn't that familiar with the music, but I was like, man, this isn't right. Like, this, we didn't do justice to all of the hours that they spent, you know, creating this masterpiece. So I said, the following year, which is 2008, I said, I'm going to pull together a band just so that we can play Nutcracker correctly. So I got guys together. And, you know, in New Orleans, there's not a lot of reading of music going on. You know, guys are playing, we're playing gigs, we're playing, maybe they're playing, you know, wedding gigs, or they're playing parties, or they're playing in the street. Um, so when I hired these guys, I said, man, how's your reading? They said, well, it's been a minute. So we rehearsed for about three months. I believe we started in, uh, in October, October, November, and then December. And it was a lot, way more rehearsing. It was one of them things where it was out of the passion and love for the music. Because I'm like, you know, cats aren't getting paid. So we did the Nutcracker. Man, it was swinging. It was like, it was the way the music was supposed to sound. Then the concert's over, and the guys in the band were like, man, we ought to keep this thing going. I was like, you know, well, you know, I hadn't thought of that. So I asked my dad. I said, man, what do you think? He said, no, it's always a good idea to have a band. He said, but you need to find a gig. He said, because you can't have a band without a gig. So that's when we connected with Snug Harbor. And next thing I know, Uptown Jazz Orchestra is formed. So... That was it. How many of the original players are still with you? Uh, none. None of the original players are still there. Roger Lewis, who was also a founding member of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, we call him the Dirty Old Man, uh, he's always on the road with the Dirty Dozen. Now he's 81. And Herlin Riley was in that original band. He plays sometimes, but uh, you know he has a lot of other work that he does with his own groups. 
And I'm pretty sure, you know, that's it. So we've had a, a couple of different iterations until we've gotten to the band that we have now. And uh, we just have that, that understanding about what things are. So uh, that's really key uh, in any band is to have a clear understanding of what you're trying to communicate and the point you're trying to get across. When you talk about the oral, oral transmission process in African-American music, you are a world-class music educator. How do you turn teenagers or young learners on to their oral faculty so that the music and the style is not only preserved, but uh, authentic in what we bring to that process? Well, you know, the interesting thing about having studied the, what I consider the European tradition, you know, Palestrina and the Gregorian chants and, you know, the, the length, is that there is the history is preserved a certain kind of way. So we don't actually know what was played. We have an idea, but we've accepted this idea, like this is actually what was going on. So, you know, for example, in the Renaissance era, a lot of times, or even when Bach was composing, they just, whatever instrument, just a bass instrument, it wasn't codified in a way where we said, okay, we have to have exactly this, exactly a violin, exactly these number of instruments. But we've kind of accepted that tradition, like there was this master plan that went way back. But I would say back then, the music was more like in the, the European countries, more like what it was in the African world, which is it's functional. It's functional music. So whoever can play, you find somewhere for that person to fit in. And what we try to do with the students is to get them to just listen. Just listen to the music. And I'll tell them almost it doesn't even matter. For example, with Louis Armstrong, who was, you know, the greatest American ever, in my opinion. He, you know, grew up in poverty and didn't have a lot of opportunities. He made his own opportunities. But more importantly than that, man, Louis Armstrong always puts you in a good mood. He never had a bad day. And to prove that point, I'll tell a student, name any number between 25 and 68. And whatever, they say, okay, uh, 52. Say, Louis Armstrong, 1952. Whatever comes up, you know, in the search, it's going to be killing. And I just say, we just do that at random, and we listen to it, and we say, always there's something to learn. Okay, so we listen to Louis Armstrong and say, okay, what's the difference between how Mr. Armstrong is playing and the solo that you just played? And he say, well, okay, his ideas are more clear. It's really crisp. Uh, it has a certain kind of an emotional fortitude. There's different things that the students themselves will discover. The thing is that they're not being taught to listen and to listen very acutely enough. And when I was in high school, that was what my teachers would always say. What do you hear? What do you hear? What does this sound like? So if they're playing Pendereki, Victims of Hiroshima, boy, that's a tough one. It's like, what do you hear? And I said, man, this is... Why would anybody want to write music like this? I remember that one particular piece because we were so passionate about it and we finished, you know, in anger because it really, it grates your nerves. And uh, Dr. Bro, he was our teacher, he's laughing. He's like, man, this is the first time that I got y'all to respond to some music like that. We're like, oh man, he got us, he tricked us. So a lot of it I'd say is just kind of tricking the students by just letting them listen and having them come to an awareness on their own. So rather than just tell them straight out, Louis Armstrong was great because he played this way. Listen to it and say, what do you hear? And then you can kind of 
pinpoint different ideas. And I'm also a believer in, yeah, let's listen at Bach. Let's listen at Mozart. Let's listen at Puccini. Let's listen at everything and figure out what is the common ground. What can you use? Okay, you hear an opera, an aria being sung. You said, okay, you play a solo that's clear like that. And uh, so that's the goal is to always use our ears because it's music. You've created this marvelous entity called the Uptown Musical Theater. Um, I don't think it's a, it's a performing arts high school, but it's an experience for students that want to know how to do, what to do, when, where, why, blah, 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 blah. Talk a little bit about that, as well as the cool school for younger learners. Right. So Uptown Music Theater is similar to the Uptown Jazz Orchestra in that I pull it together, didn't really have the master plan, and about 1997, a different organization performed my first musical. It was called Luther. And, you know, the kids had a great time, so they kept calling me, 98, 99, 2000, Mr. Delphia, when you gonna get your own program? Mr. Delphia, when you... So finally, in 2000, a kid calls me, January, February, what you doing this summer? I said, look, we're going to have the program this summer, all right? So y'all can stop calling me. So I called up some people. I said, look, man, we need to do this thing for these kids. And we just put it together. So come June, we had auditions, and all these kids showed up. Now, this was before American Idol, before social media. So the kids didn't really have any kind of an outlet. You know, there was no Facebook. So, man, all these kids showed up, and they were really interested and serious. So I wrote the first play that year was called Kids Town. And it was uh, the premise is that the kids, they're tired of the grown up rules and they run off and they form their own town. Of course, they're about to burn the town down so the parents save the day. And that was kind of the going theme with me and these kids is always that the parents are going to be right. I was telling them that the parents are right 150 out of 90 times. So don't even come to me with any kind of a, of a gripe with the adults. Uh, so at any rate, uh, that's when we started in 2000, and we just kept it going, you know. And I didn't realize it at the time, but now we're one of two black-led musical theater organizations, or theater organizations for kids in New Orleans. Uh, there's Anthony Bean, who is a great actor, and he also has authored a number of works, his community theater, and then Uptown Music Theater. So there's been times when I, I thought maybe we would stop doing it. But, uh, you know, I realized that there's a need for it, and we're going to try to keep it going. We've sent two kids to Broadway. We've had uh, in the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, one of our students made it to uh, the Juilliard School. And we've had, oh, yeah, we had one theater student that was at the Juilliard School also come through our program. So, you know, it's the same idea of, of the way that I was taught in high school, which is you're going to learn on a high level, and it's like you don't know anything. So that when you get to that situation... And I remember when the young lady, uh, she was in Lion King on Broadway for a year or maybe two years, and she got the role, and they were like, oh, you must be proud. And I said, yeah, it's, you know, but that's what I was expecting. It's like I trained the students. My vibe with them is always that I'm expecting you to get the job. And if you don't get the job, that's cool. But don't think that, oh, you know, you, you know what you're supposed to do. And that is the, big, the key to it all is kind of the advanced preparation. Do, you, do the kids pay tuition or you're using grants? How do, you, how do you fund this wonderful entity? Yeah, it's been tough lately. Uh, it started off where we were receiving grants, and uh, now we have certain programs that the kids are, the parents are paying the tuition. Uh, so we're at that point. We're kind of at the crossroads where we're trying to decide which direction we're going to go so that we can keep this going. But uh, 
you know, really, and I'd say the one thing that's important to me has always been family. It's not something that I thought initially, but as I look back at it, I said, one thing that the Uptown Jazz Orchestra has in common with the musical theater is that the sense of family. And, you know, we take our kids to competitions and the judges would always comment on, it's like one extended family. And I think that works well with me. I'm like that, kind of that crazy uncle that just, and the parents just kind of let me go. They say, okay, well, we just, and it's one of them things where they trust that, you know, we have the, the student's best interest at heart. So we can be tough on them and we can give them a taste of the real world, you know, even at a young age. And uh, one of my most proud moments a few years back, and I don't remember what show we were performing, but they were also performing with Cynthia Erivo and uh, they had to learn the music. So we're at this competition, we're in Atlanta and they have exams coming up. So they're working literally from noon until eight or 9 p.m. And then we had to learn the music that they were gonna perform with Mr. Revo at 10 p.m. And they're tired and they're falling asleep. And I know though that they're, I gotta stay on them and be like, push them to the brink. And one of the girls was like, she's just crying. And I can tell that she is so worn out. Finally, I said, what are you, what's, what are you doing? And she said, it's okay. It's, and I said, girl, go, go to bed. Like, get, get, your, go out, get out of here. So, but it's that thing of pushing the kids to the brink. And I'm telling them, look, when you get to college and it's exam time, you're going to remember this. That's what's going to allow you to do what you have to, because there are times in life when you have to endure. And, uh, but the kids really, they, you know, great group of kids and we want to keep it going. This project that I've launched, in their own words, uh, focuses on generations of African Americans in music. Um, I'm particularly interested right now in that group of people, and it's and it's it's a diminishing group of people who are 80 years old, 90 years old. In particular, I was blessed to do an interview with T.J. Anderson, who is retired in Atlanta, did that this past summer. I'm wondering if there are persons from that generation that influenced you in some way, what have you. And then as you think about the generations ahead of you, your current, our current generation of African-American musicians that are doing incredible things uh, in all genres of music. You know, the old folks have always been important to me because when I was seven or eight, my mom sent me to my great uncle, Alphonse. And Alphonse was an interesting character because, you know, he was actually a white man that identified as black, but he had like that much of Negro blood in him, I guess. You know, which is interesting because there was such a stark difference in New Orleans between that designation, you know, in terms of the job opportunities and just everything that you can imagine. But man, he was, he was down for the cause. And uh, I just reflect on, I remember him, he had a certain kind of strength. He was born in about 1894 or 96. And he just had, I just remember him being a really strong man. It, it just, and I tell the kids today, like not knowing someone that was born in the 1800s, like when you knew that person, it's just something about, you know, they were cut from a whole different cloth completely. Um, he built his own shed in the backyard and I was young and he had me to go 
pick up those nails, get, hand me that hammer and stuff like this. He built the shed by himself and I just did those menial tasks. And later he would tell everybody, yeah, this young man, he helped me build that shed. Which I'm like, this old man, is, he's, something's going on. But I realized that that was his way of, you know, giving me a sense of, of value and pride. And even though I didn't see it that way, I'm like, yeah, I didn't really do anything. You know, that was the way that we connected. So I'd say Alphonse was really important to me early on. And as far as the musicians, you know, when I met, you know, Clark Terry and Elvin Jones and Max Roach, and I knew these people when they were later in years. So there was a certain understanding that I had about kind of their difficulties. And I was there to help out. And that was something that was important to me to just try to help out in whatever way that I could, you know, with the music and also maybe kind of, you know, personally, or you get older, there's physical things that you have to deal with. Um, but as far as, and I know we said musicians, but, you know, I'd say recently I met a fellow by the name of Jerome Smith. Jerome Smith was one of our civil rights leaders in New Orleans. He would have been in his 20s uh, at that point, I believe. And... uh I met Jerome Smith in the bank, so I'm going to the bank. The debit card's not working. So I'm like, oh, man, what's this debit card? I got to go back two or three times. But I'm thinking the reason that the debit card wasn't working was so that I could meet Jerome Smith. So Jerome Smith's in the bank, and I introduce myself. I'm Delphi Marcellus, and he starts talking about my dad. Oh, I knew your father, and he taught me music, and he's beautiful, Ellis. And then and he goes through this, and I said, thank you, sir. But I said, you know, what you did for this city was really very important, man. And he said, well, you know, we just did what we had to do. So he's leaving and I said, can I give you a ride or anything? He said, no, no, that's all right. Cause you know, old folks, they got a certain kind of pride. Well, he's getting into a taxi and uh, I see that. So I go out, I open the door for him and he gets in the taxi. And as he's, he's getting in, he's pulling his right leg up and he pulls his right leg up and he says, yeah, boy. He said, when them cops got me with that belly club in the sixties, they told me it was going to be tough as I got older. And he said, and he right, but we gave him hell. And I just said, thank you, sir. And I closed the door. And it made me realize that the heroes, the American heroes, are walking amongst us. And many times we don't acknowledge because we don't know. And we don't, you know, a lot of times we're focused on what is the news media saying. And uh, it was really important to me to let Mr. Smith know that, I understand, or at least I appreciate what he did. Because that's like a real thing. That's like a real, real thing when you're going to face authority. And these are the people that you actually look up to and you have respect for, and they don't have respect for the law. And they are law officers. And that's something that black folk have struggled with, and I believe we'll continue to struggle with, uh, and the idea of being, you know, the villain. So Jerome Smith at the time was perceived by many as being the villain, when really what he was trying to do was stand up for democratic principles, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my vibe with the older folks is trying to help to tell their story, which is, in fact, all of our story. When you think about your story as we wrap up this interview. Already? <laughs> when you think about where you've been, how you've gotten to where you are now, and where you are continuing to grow, what is it that concerns you? What is it that you are still celebrating? Hmm. Well, you know, I like to celebrate the older folks, especially my mother, 
And, you know, my dad's received a lot of praises, as he should. But uh, my mother was the one that actually had the plan for family, and she was a home economics major at Grambling State University. And it was her idea to, to have a large family. And she was a feminist early on, so I think she really kept trying to, to get that girl. Well, her reward for being a feminist was having six boys, <laughs> and that's just kind of how that goes. But uh, she had a certain kind of vision, but at the same time, she never sought any recognition, wasn't looking for any awards or anything like that. But, uh, you know, without her, you know, we, we wouldn't, certainly, we wouldn't be here on a number of levels. And my dad at the time, you know, he wanted to play music. He wanted to be a pianist. But uh, she was like, she kept his family thing going. And I remember in the, uh, the 70s, she would try to explain to us about the civil rights movement. And, you know, I was really young, so I didn't really get it. And she'd read us James Baldwin. We'd have a family meeting, and she's reading us Langston Hughes. And my brother Ellison, and we're like, man, what's wrong with mom? What is she talking about? Why is she tripping? And Because we were too young, but as we got older, we understood that she had a certain vision for us. And she would always, not necessarily tell us in words, but her brother Delphio, Uncle Delph, he would always say, you know, that expressed the idea that for black folk in America, in the South, there was no chance at upward mobility. There was no realistic chance at really, you know, getting ahead or folks would just take what you had. You know, this is a story in a, throughout American history of that. You know, doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It's just folks don't like it, so that's just what it is. But saying that to say, you know, Uncle Delph and, and my mom and that generation, I could sense the, the amount of pain that they were in. And uh, that's something that we kind of have taken for granted and the younger generations, just the, the pain that a lot of our older people had and our ancestors, and they endured a lot because, uh, you know, not only were they good people, but they had good intentions and they understood how the world actually is designed. And now we're in a situation where people don't have a good understanding. And is, uh, I think it's, so what concerns me is the amount of selfishness that's out here and then the lack of regard for, for humanity and you know, for human life. So this is something that we have to just continually talk to our young people about is the idea of making sure that you're doing what is right and that you're following the proper path. What do you celebrate as you're moving forward? Right. So I like to celebrate the, the black experience in America, mm. you know, and the, the idea of slavery. It's an interesting thing. You know, I, we ran a program at a school. The school's called Robert Mills Lusher. Now, so there's a lot of backstory here. Robert Mills Lusher, he was the head of the school board in the 1800s, and he was a staunch, like he was racist as they could be. So, and his philosophy was a, a penny spent on educating the black mind was a penny wasted. That was his philosophy. So they named the school after him, and there was a big uproar with, with the parents, and they, they said they want to change the name. And I said, no, I don't think that they should change the name. They should make every student write a paper about Robert Mills Lusher just to get the perspective of what America actually is in, Ameri in New Orleans and, and how that's represented. So that was the first part of it. So the parents came to me. They wanted me to write musicals uh, about black history. They said, well, the school doesn't celebrate black history, so would you write some musicals so these kids can learn more about black history? Thought about it. said, okay, I'll write these musicals provided they are never performed in the month of February. So I said, okay. They agreed to that. March, April, we're going to put on these, these shows. One show called 
the crazy 60s, those crazy 60s. And I wrote a song, and it was a cowboy song. And it was, it was can't get around, can't get around, can't get around your race, can't get around, can't get around, the color of your face. And in the lyrics, one line says something to the effect of, if you come on my side, the railroad tracks, you come on this side, I'm going to tan your hide. So little white kid, he's probably second grade, he raises his hand, he says, okay, look, okay, I separated by race. Anybody that identifies as black or minority, over here. Anybody that identifies as white, over here. So they're separated. So I said, uh, the, the kid raised his hand. And he says, I don't understand this lyric. And I said, well, it's like an old cowboy expression. Like if you get into a fight with somebody and you whip them, you, you tan their hide, it's like you're behind. It changes colors. And, and the kid says to me, well, that should be our line, though, because the blacks were the slaves. And I thought about that because second grade, his understanding of race is such that he feels that he is part of the superior race. He feels that everyone that is white was a slave owner. Everyone that is black was a slave. So the challenge here is how do we tell our story that is not, and by that our story, I mean the American story, that it's not always the slave owner and the slave. But it's an understanding of the greatness of the human experience and how people came together and worked. And it's the tough it's tough because that's the perception. That right there is the perception. And if it comes down to, uh, on a political level, we could separate it. It all comes down to where is the power and how are things described. So I would say right now I'm looking to celebrate people, not only because they withstood so much nonsense, but because they represented what I would love to represent, what I would love to see my kids, or the kids that I work with represent. Thank you. Wow. This is amazing. Thanks for listening to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Join us next time when we talk with King's Return, a Grammy-nominated a cappella quartet from Dallas, Texas. We want to inspire people to go in the direction of their dreams, to take risks, to take chances, to band with other people and to be fearless in uncovering what it is that you want to do. I'm Charles Dumas. Thanks for listening. In Their Own Words is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you.